And so I would invite you now to take your Bible, go to Hebrews chapter 11, and I'm simply going to read the first three verses. Let us hear the word of God. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. That is God's word. May he add his blessing to its reading and preaching by the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Part of living a life marked by persevering faith is tracing the pattern of others whose lives were marked by persevering faith. That's Hebrews chapter 11 in a nutshell. Hebrews 11 provides real-life examples from the pages of biblical history of what it looks like to live a life marked by persevering faith in the promises of God in Christ. All, all of God's promises find their yes and amen in Jesus. All of God's promises ultimately find their fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus. Therefore, we believe that even these Old Testament brothers and sisters, these Old Testament saints, give us a picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus till the end. In Hebrews 11, the, the author is saying to us, you want to know what it looks like to follow Jesus to the end? Look at Enoch. Look at Noah. Look at Abraham. Look at Sarah. Look at Moses. Look at Joshua. Look at Rahab. Look at David. Look at their lives. And here's what you see. You see a pattern to trace. A pattern of persevering faith to the end. And so the point of these examples is not to simply be an inspiration to us. The point of these examples is to provide a pattern for us to imitate. Each one of them provides a pattern for persevering faith. So last week we began by asking the question, well, what is faith? What is persevering faith? And that's what verse 1 deals with. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Verse 1 does not tell us everything there is to say about faith, but it provides a very helpful summary for the essential characteristics of persevering faith. And so we noticed last week four characteristics of persevering faith. We looked at faith's anticipation, which is waiting for a better future. Faith is about things hoped for. We looked at faith's action, which is primarily seeing the unseen. We considered faith's anchor, that faith's anchor is in the reliability of God's promises. The things are the things promised. And then we considered faith's attitude. Faith's attitude is a confident expectation. Faith has baked into it this idea of assurance, conviction. And so our working definition for faith that's going to carry us through this chapter is as follows. Faith is a confident expectation that whatever God has promised will surely come to pass in his time and in his way because God always does what he says. So faith is not wishful thinking. 
Faith is not a leap in the dark. Faith is not blind. Faith is not a therapeutic coping mechanism. Faith is a confident expectation that whatever God has promised will surely come to pass in his time, in his way, because God always does what he says. So what does it look like to live with that kind of faith? What does it look like to live, to walk by faith and not by sight? What does it look like to be confidently obedient in the present while waiting for God to provide that better future in connection with his reliable promises? Well, look at verse 2. Verse 2 says that part of the answer is found in considering the examples that God has set forth as a witness to persevering faith. Look at verse 2. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. Um, the it there in verse 2 is the faith that was just described in verse 1. So by faith, the people of old, literally the ancient ones, it's the Greek word presbyteros, where we get the word elder, or if you maybe heard of Presbyterian churches, these are churches that are governed by bodies of elders. This is the word here, the ancient ones. By faith, the ancient ones receive their commendation. Now, this is an interesting word. On the surface, it may look like it's saying that because they had faith, God approved of them. Or because they had faith, they, they kind of earned God's favor. That's how we might see the word. Like, you, you got a promotion at work based on the commendation of your manager because you did such a great job. That's how we would normally use the word, but that's not what this word means in the original language. The word commendation in the original language is actually the Greek word martyreo, is where we get our English word martyr. Uh, the most common use of the word martyr in our, in our everyday lingo is to describe someone who has suffered great or has died because of their commitment to a cause. And certainly there's a nuance of that in this word in the New Testament, but in general, the word itself means someone whose life testifies or witnesses to the validity of a thing. It's the same word that was used by Jesus in its noun form in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 when Jesus said, you are my witnesses. In other words, the, the, the early church served as witnesses, testimonies, commending the validity of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and all of its spiritual significance. It's the same word that's used at the end of this section in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1 where the author writes, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. That's the same word there again in its noun form. So, so witnesses of what? Witnesses of living a life of persevering faith. So chapter 11 begins and chapter 12 opens, closing out this section with the author saying that all the people who are listed here in this chapter provide for us a witness, a testimony, a commendation that God is who he is, does what he says, his promises are infinitely reliable. And God is the one commending them. God is saying, I'm commending them to you as examples, as patterns of what it looks like to live a life of persevering faith. So, 
as we move into verse 3 this morning, which is going to be our primary landing place. Uh, This is the last verse of this very short introduction, verses 1 through 3. And the point here is that even though we have a lot to learn from these examples of the faith, even though we have a lot to emulate in the, from these patterns of perseverance, although we have a lot to look to in this cloud of witnesses, it's important to consider a couple things before we examine them. First of all, our faith is not in the faithful. Our faith is not in the faithful ones. As Protestant Christians, we, we, we deny the false teaching of the veneration of the saints. So Abraham isn't here for us to put our faith in Abraham. We're not here to pray to Sarah. No, we don't do that. We don't believe in the veneration of the saints. Growing up Catholic, this is something I was very, very familiar with. There was like the patron saint of everything, you name it. And when you had a need, you prayed to the patron saint who was good at doing a certain thing for you. So in our house, I was so used to my mom praying to St. Anthony. Why? Because he was the patron saint of lost things. I'm not sure how he got that gig, okay? But he was the patron saint of lost things. And so my mom would often pray, St. Anthony, St. Anthony, come around. Something's lost and can't be found. So maybe back when he got this gig, um, he's like, man, what am I going to do? People aren't losing things all the time. And then God probably said, wait till they get cell phones and wallets and keys, okay? Then they're going to lose things all the time. And so you'll come in handy. Well, that's obviously a joke. Don't believe in that. But what's the point? You, you would pray to one of these saints because you believe that this faithful one could do something significant for you from heaven on earth. No, no, no. These examples aren't being set before us as ones that we put our faith in. That's not what they're there for. We benefit from the examples of the faithful, but we don't locate our faith in the faithful. Another reason why we have verse 3 to kind of kick off this section is because I think the author is also making clear is that our faith is not only not in the faithful ones, our faith is also not in faith. Faith isn't a nebulous concept. We don't have faith in faith, although faith always has an object. Uh, when people say, hey, you just got to keep the faith, or you just got to have faith, or is that popular song from back in the 90s, George Michaels, oh, you got to have faith, the faith, the faith, right? You got to have it. Faith in what? Sometimes it means faith in yourself. Sometimes it means faith in fate. Things are just going to work out the way they work out. Sometimes faith is just in the, the goodness of humanity. When someone says keep the faith or you got to have faith, that's, that's very, very generic until an object is stated. We don't have faith in faith. We always have faith in someone or something. Our faith is not in some abstract object. And so as this chapter unfolds, by faith Abraham, by faith Sarah, by faith Moses, by faith Rahab, by faith in what? Not in faith, not in previous faithful ones. But verse 3 directs our attention to who the only legitimate object of our faith ought to be. By faith, verse 3, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. There's only one individual 
who is worthy of your unending trust and faith. It is the creator of the universe. So living by faith, according to Hebrews 11, is locating all your hope, all your confidence in the creator of the universe. And so here's the big idea we want to park on for a few moments. The creator of the universe is uniquely qualified to carry the weight of all our hope and trust. So when we see those words by faith, repeating over and over and over again in this chapter, what's understood based upon verse 3 as the launching point, it's by faith in the creator of the universe. And only the creator of the universe is qualified to hold the weight of all your hope and trust. So this morning we want to just consider for a little bit, why is this true? Why is the creator of the universe uniquely qualified to carry all the weight of your hope and your trust? Let me give you three reasons. Let me give you to them all up front to start. God is uniquely qualified to do this for you because of his unique position, because of his unique process, and because of his unique power. Let's first consider God's unique position. By faith, we understand that the universe was created. The author wants this to be clear. The material universe did not get here by accident. It was created. That means there is a creator. A creator who existed before anything we see existed. The word universe is literally the word ages, the, the realm of time and space. Literally, the, the physical universe. So where did time and space come from? The author quite directly says the creator brought it into existence. And he says, by faith, we understand that. How is that? How is this an issue of faith? Well, you weren't there. I wasn't there. No one was there but God. You see, that puts him in a unique position. He alone was there at the beginning. That's how the Bible starts, right? Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God. And what did he do? He created the entire material universe. He's unique. And that he alone was there at the beginning. Darwin wasn't there at the beginning. Richard Hawkins wasn't there at the beginning. Your know-it-all high school biology teacher was not there at the beginning. You weren't there at the beginning. I was not there at the beginning. But God was there. And he got it all started. That's the point of verse 3. You say, that's really hard to understand. Whenever you get into this conversation about origins and how everything came into being and how everything we see got here, that's a very hard thing to grasp. You're right. Very hard to grasp. That's why the author says, by faith, we understand it. We're dealing with understanding that which to a certain degree is incomprehensible. You didn't see it. You weren't there. But there's evidence. The universe is here. How did it get here? 
the author says, by faith we understand that it was created, that there is a creator. And so why does it start off this way? I think here's the idea that kind of makes sense with the rest of what we have here in Hebrews 11. That creator that created everything there is can hold the weight of taking care of everything that is, right? If that creator created everything, if that creator sustains everything, then he can hold the weight of taking responsibility for everything created, and that would include your life. That's why in the opening of the book, the author celebrates Jesus, that he's the one who not only created all things, but upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is celebrated in chapter one in the opening of Hebrews as the one who made everything and sustains everything, and you can trust in him. The one who created everything upholds everything, and that includes you and your life, and so you can trust him to hold the weight, to carry the weight of all that involves you being you, doing all that you have been called to do in this world. So the one who created the universe can be trusted to take care of the universe. And so part of the application here is that you can trust Jesus to carry the weight of what's going on in your life because he made you. He made everything. I think it's important to note here that no matter what theory you subscribe to, to explain the origin of the universe, one thing is always required of you. It's faith. Faith, it takes faith to believe every theory out there about how everything got here. It takes faith to believe Darwinian evolution. It takes faith to believe the Big Bang Theory. It takes faith to believe that a creator, a pre-existent eternal triune creator, created the entire universe. Wrestle with all the theories of origin as you want, but no matter what, you'll be called to exhibit faith. Why? You weren't there. There were no eyewitnesses. No one was there. And, and I believe with all my heart that the Bible provides the most compelling explanation for the origin of of the universe. I find it interesting that the longer I am a Christian, I, I mean this, the longer I am a Christian, the more I am amazed by how all the fields of science only bolster my, my faith in creation by the direct act of God. Science, not, science only continues to, to reveal the wonders of all the order and intentional design that exists in the material universe. The world of science does not honestly strengthen faith in random mutations, in primordial soup, or in cataclysmic explosions of chemicals that just bring things into being. The deeper you go into science, the deeper you see intentional design. The deeper you go into the science, the more you see complex ecosystems that are operating like a fine like a fine-tuned machine making everything happen the way it should happen, doing all that it should do. It's amazing. I believe the world of science primarily produces more and more evidence of intelligent design. And it's my conviction 
that the world of science only further bolsters faith in the opening line of scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now we could really kind of really just go headlong into this subject, but it's not really the point of the author. The author's point is not to give a detailed apologetic for the origin of the universe. He doesn't even go into all the details and mechanisms of, of how it happened, except for by saying one thing that we'll look at in a moment. But, but here's his point. The triune God of the universe is uniquely qualified to carry the weight of all your hope and trust. Why? Because he's the creator. And that creator can hold the weight of being responsible for everything he created. And again, that would include your life. That's a unique position that no one else can say they hold, which implies unique abilities, which no one else can say they have. The creator of the universe holds a unique position as the creator and sustainer of the material universe. He's responsible for engineering the entire physical universe. That's a resume you can trust when it comes to putting your hope in him to take care of your life. He can handle that job description quite well. God's worthy of all of our hope and trust. He can hold the weight of all of our hope and trust because he is uniquely qualified by his position. But notice second, his unique process. Look at how he did this. God's process, God's method of creating were with words. By the word of God. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. What does this mean? It means that God literally spoke, spoke things into existence. The creation account of Genesis 1 repeats this process. And God, God said, and it was so. God said, and it was so. God said, let there be light, and it was so. So God brings the world into existence through his words. So this means, among other things, God's words are weighty. God's words are reliable. When God says something, amazing things happen. And so this this, this begins to, to frame our understanding of why God's words are reliable, why God's promises can be counted on. It's because when God speaks, his will is done. When God says it, it is so. So when it comes to the promises of God, if God says it, we can trust that it will be so. You can trust God's promises because the creator of the universe always does what he says. So when God says things, I mean, when he promises things, I mean, go on a tour of your Bible. His promises are jaw-dropping. They are numerous. They're everywhere. God obligates himself to action over and over again. And our responsibility as those who have faith in the promises of God, are to take those promises and claim them and say, God, you said this. 
I trust that it will be so. So when God says things like through Solomon in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. There's a promise. You should trust it. Why? Because God always does what he says. Would you come across promises like the one that God speaks to the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 4, verse 19? For my God will supply all of your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Why should you have faith in that promise? That God will provide everything you need. It's very simple. Because he said he would. When God says through the Apostle Paul again in Romans 8, 28, that God works all things together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, why can we trust that in the midst of all the good and the bad and the sad and the happy and the chaotic and the unruly, that God is working all together for his good purposes? Why can we believe that? Because he said it. And God always does what he says. How about when Jesus said in John 14, verse 4, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, you will be also. Why should we believe and anticipate that the same Christ who was born of a virgin, who lived a perfect life, who died in her place on the cross, who rose from the dead, why should we believe that he's going to come back and get us and make everything that's wrong right again? Why should we believe that? Because he said it. You can trust in the promises of God's guidance, God's provision, God's protection, and God's eternal salvation, because God always does what he says. When God said something, it will be so. That's how the world was created. That's how God's universe works. He says it, it happens. And that has significant, that has significant implications for us as Christians as we seek to claim the promises of God like these examples in Hebrews chapter 11. They lived by faith that because God said it, he would do it in his time and in his way, even if not in their lifetime, as was the case for all of them that are mentioned here. They never saw Christ with their physical eyes. But they believed because God said it. He would do it. So the creator of the universe is uniquely qualified to carry the weight of all your hope and trust, first because of his unique position, second because of his unique process, and then finally because of his unique power. Notice the last phrase here in verse 3. What is seen was not made out of things that are visible. In other words, God has the power to create something out of nothing. The on, this only bolsters our faith in the promises of God. That God has promises yet to be fulfilled. And he has the ability to fulfill them. Not simply... In, in, in natural ways, not simply in terms of, of what would make sense by what we see. God's ability 
to fulfill his promises are based upon his power as the creator to bring stuff out of nothing. The Latin phrase that was adapted, um, adopted to describe God's power to create was ex nihilo, out of nothing. When we create things, when we build things, when we invent things, when we make things, we need pre-existing materials to do so. For instance, last night, uh, my wife and I created an amazing dinner for our family to enjoy on the 4th of July. Although in retrospect, we realized it was probably more appropriate for Cinco de Mayo than Independence Day. But we had some amazing carne asada tacos. Rachel made an amazing guacamole cream sauce. We had some pretty, pretty outstanding rice and beans and some blackened corn. Why were we able to pull that together? Well, we couldn't just pull carne asada out of thin air. We had to work with pre-existing materials that were already here for us to work with. Now, it took some skill. And Rachel, you got some amazing skill. Um, it, it takes some skill to take the things that are before us and, and organize them and measure them so that we are actually really, truly creating something wonderful and beautiful. But we can only do it because we have pre-existing materials. That's not the way God made the universe. The things that are seen were not made out of pre-existing materials. The things that were seen, that are seen, were made of things that are not visible. In other words, the things that are seen were made out of things unseen. In other words, God has the power to speak physical material into existence. What? Right? We can't do this. This is God being holy other. This is God literally being unique. Only God can do this. God can create something out of nothing. So what's the point in context? Again, the point isn't to do an apologetic on creation by the direct act of God. But the point is to do this in context. When it comes to living by faith, when it comes to putting your hope and trust in the promises of God, we put our hope and trust in the one who's able to fulfill his promises in both ordinary and extraordinary ways. Which means God is not limited to only doing things the way we can. God is not only limited by time and space. God is not limited by the laws of nature. God's solutions and provisions are not always explainable by rational, logical thought progression. Because God operates on a total different level. He is the one who spoke the, word, the world into existence by the word of his power. So if we believe that, if we believe that God creates something out of nothing, if we believe that God can create something out of nothing, then we have no problem believing that he can part the Red Sea to deliver his people. If God created the universe out of nothing, then we shouldn't have a hard time believing that he could send bread from heaven or bring water out of rocks. 
If God created the universe out of nothing, then we shouldn't be surprised that an infertile woman was able to have her firstborn in her 90s. If God created the universe out of nothing, we shouldn't be surprised that he can cause a virgin to give birth to the Son of God who would walk on water, heal the lame, give sight to the blind, cast out demons, raise the dead, willingly suffer in our place on the cross, be buried in the tomb, and three days later rise from the dead. If God created the universe out of nothing, then he certainly can return in power and glory and make everything that's wrong in this world exactly the way it should be. If God created the universe out of nothing, if the God we hope in is able to create something out of nothing, then he can certainly save you from your sin, overcome all your shame, raise up and transform your broken life, sustain you in your suffering, turn bitter events into sweet events, use you to make a difference in this fallen world, and one day take you to heaven to be in his presence. The creator of the universe is uniquely qualified to hold the weight of all your hope and trust because he is the God who creates something out of nothing over and over and over again. I came across the following quote from the Puritan Thomas Manton. He said, quote, Remember you have a creator which made you out of nothing, and he can keep and preserve life when you have nothing. Remember, you have a creator who, who made you out of nothing, and he certainly can keep and take care of you and provide for you and protect you when you have nothing. Maybe you feel like you have nothing right now. Nothing seems to be going right. Nothing seems to be the way it should be. Everything seems to be falling apart. You're confused. You're conflicted. You're hurting. You're discouraged. You're desperate. You're wondering why, why, why. One thing you are aware of, the only thing you are aware of, is that you have nothing to make it better. If that's where you are this morning, well, I've got good news for you. The one who made everything out of nothing is able to provide everything you need in this time of life. The one who made everything out of nothing can keep you and preserve you when you have nothing. So what do we do by faith? We bring our nothing to Christ. And we say, help. Help me believe I have nothing. Provide for me, I have nothing. Protect me, I have nothing. Restore me, I have nothing. Forgive me, I have nothing. Restore me, I have nothing. Care for me, I have nothing. God, I bring my nothing to you. 
do something. And that's where God shines as God. Bring your nothing to Christ. And he will do something to bring himself glory and meet you in your great need. By faith, you can trust the creator of the universe to hold the weight of all your hope and trust, both now and forever. By faith, bring your nothing to Christ and trust him to do everything you need him to do right now. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Before we even look at all the examples of what it looks like to live a life of persevering faith, you've made it very clear here at the outset that our faith is not in these faithful examples. Our faith is not in some nebulous idea of faith. Our faith is in you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune creator of the universe. Father, you planned it. Christ, you executed it. Spirit, you animated it. You created the entire universe by the word of your power. You were able to bring something out of nothing. There is no one like you. And before we bring our nothing to you, before we bring our needs and our burdens and our cares and our concerns to you, we simply want to marvel and celebrate and worship. There is no one like you. Great are you, Lord, in all the earth. You are the maker of heaven and earth and we declare your praise. We celebrate your worth. We acknowledge that there is no one of whom it can be said. The universe was created by the word of God. And so God, we want to honor you and declare our faith that we believe that you are able to carry the weight of responsibility for everything you have created. And so give us, give us faith to see that. Give us faith to acknowledge that. And help us now to bring our nothing to you. And trust you to do something that only you can do. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.